Uh, welcome this morning to Grace Road. If uh, you recall, we are in our last week of our rhythm series. And the idea of our rhythm series is that when an individual, when a Christian believes the gospel, when they don't just uh, believe it in their minds, but when they push the gospel deep into their hearts, that the gospel message, the good news, the truths of the gospel will not produce in them an apathy. Uh, we won't be apathetic to uh, Christian disciplines, but when the gospel penetrates our hearts, it will produce in us natural rhythms as a Christian that we will live out. So uh, as the gospel impacts us, we'll be a people of the word of God. We'll love the scriptures. We'll be a people who are willing to rest because we don't believe everything rides on us. Last week, we looked at when we're overwhelmed by the gospel, that the gospel message will make us a generous people. And this morning, uh, we're going to see that if we're truly impacted by the gospel, a normal, regular rhythm of our life will be that we will be a people of prayer, that we will be a people who naturally go to the Father. All throughout Scripture, uh, we see this command to pray. Romans chapter number 12, verse number 12, it says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant, be constant in prayer. So uh, when we talk about prayer, what we're talking about is simply like an easy definition would just be communication with God. That is either out loud, audibly, or in silent communication with God. We are to be constant. We're supposed to come to God as a normal rhythm and want to bring our request to him. Now, uh, the challenge with the topic of prayer is this, that we're all familiar with the topic of prayer. None of us this morning are going to be uh, awakened to the revelation that we're supposed to be talking to God. We're all very familiar with the topic of prayer. Uh, the, the only problem is that we're probably just more familiar with the topic of prayer than we are the practice of prayer. We don't need more information on prayer. Uh, we're very familiar with it. It's just not regular routine, a rhythm of our life. If I were to ask you this morning, hey, raise your hand and I'm not going to do this, but how many of you are just thrilled with your prayer life? And you think like, hey, I got my struggles, I got my problems, but prayer is not one of them. I'm really strong in the area of prayer. If I were to ask you to raise your hands, I doubt that many of our hands would go up. And this is why uh, we, we tend to like sermons on prayer about as much as we like sermons on tithing. Because the typical prayer sermon goes something like this. You should pray. You don't pray. You should feel guilty about that and start praying more. And that's pretty much how uh, the sermons go. We say, hey, you lack in prayer. And we throw up some really like strong quotes about prayer and how your prayer life is everything. And then we, 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 we make you feel the guilt and the shame of that and say, now do better, try harder, and start to pray more. But where does guilt and shame get us? It only motivates us for a season. So if I get up and I just do that, do better, try harder in the, the area of prayer sermon, uh, at best you're going to leave here feeling guilty and ashamed that you don't pray enough. And you'll probably leave here and, and go have lunch somewhere. And, and when you have lunch, that prayer time before lunch, it's going to be on. 
You are going to be a prayer warrior. You're going to ruin everybody's lunch because you're going to be the one that prays and you're going to start praising God for everything he's ever done in your life and in the life of Abraham and Moses and Jehoshaphat. Uh, You're just going to get after it uh, at lunchtime. And and if you're really feeling convicted and you're really feeling uh, ashamed that you don't have this vibrant prayer life, then maybe tonight that guilt and that shame will motivate you this evening to maybe pray a little bit longer. But eventually that's going to go away because guilt and shame do not change us internally for any length of time. It'll motivate for a season, and then it goes away, and we're right back where we find ourselves, where we don't have this vibrant prayer life. So how do we get to the place where we, we look at this, and we, how do we get to the place where we're constant in prayer? If guilt and shame won't motivate us to be constant in prayer, what is it going to take to get there? And the answer is in this verse. These three commands are not three separate, isolated commands. You will never be constant in prayer. We will never be patient in tribulation until we do that first part, which is rejoice in hope. See, it's only when we rejoice in the hope of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, when we rejoice in the truths that the gospel brings us, that we'll long to pray, that we will be a people of prayer. So this morning, rather than give you 40 minutes of you should do, excuse me, you should do better and try harder, uh, we're not going to spend 40 minutes doing that. We're going to spend 40 minutes reminding ourselves of the truths of the gospel. We're going to spend 40 minutes making much of Jesus. And it is our hope this morning that as we make much of Jesus, as we remind ourselves of the truths of the gospel, that we will run to him and not from him. Guilt does not make us run to God. Shame does not make us run to God in prayer. But our hope this morning is as we make much of Jesus, we will desire to talk to him that will understand the unbelievable offer that we have in Christ, the access that we have to God, and that we'll long to do that, not out of guilt and duty, but out of desire. So three things this morning uh, that we should rejoice in. We can rejoice, number one, that we are deeply loved. The gospel teaches us that God, our Father, deeply loves us. And I know, I know some of you are going, this is so elementary. I can't wait till Kevin gets back so we can start learning some deeper truths. But I believe firmly that until we understand how deeply loved by God we are, we will never be a people of prayer. Because we all tend to default to this idea that God is this frustrated, annoyed father who has this standard. He has this standard for us, and we know ourselves. We know we never meet that standard. So we have this idea that he's judgy, that he's perpetually annoyed and angry with us, and, and, and we don't tend to want to talk to people who are always frustrated with us and annoyed by us. So we, we, we tend to keep our distance from God because we know that we don't live up to the, uh, the expectations of the scriptures. We know we fall short and we think God's angry at me. He's mad at me. I'm just not going to talk to him because like I said, we don't talk to people. We tend to kind of avoid and distance ourselves from people who we know don't like us. 
and who, who we know uh, don't want to have anything to do with us. Uh, an example of this, this year we... Uh, uh, the elders went to the Gospel Coalition Conference. It's a Christian conference. It has, uh, you know, some of my favorite pastors and speakers like Tim Keller and, and David Platt. And uh, session number one of the conference kicks off with John Piper. And John Piper is a, an author and a pastor and a preacher. I've read a bunch of his books. Uh, uh, one of them, Don't Waste Your Life, had a profound impact on uh, my life. So, uh, this conference has like 8,000 people in it, but we get there super early so that we can get a great seat for John Piper, session one. And uh, we got there real early. We were probably five rows back of this uh, auditorium that holds 8,000 people. So real up close, we're all jazzed up, ready to hear John Piper. So about five minutes before John Piper is scheduled to speak, out comes John Piper from the back curtain, and he takes a seat in the front row about five minutes before the service starts. So I did what any fanboy would do. I got out of my seat, and I asked John Ebel, our worship pastor, to come with me so I could have a picture taken with John Piper. Very reasonable. Five minutes before he speaks to 8,000 people. So I went up to him and I introduced myself and I shook his hand and I said, Hey, would it be all right if I had my picture taken with you? And true story, he grumbled something frustrated that sounded like a no, not now. And I was just stunned. So John started walking back to the seat because he didn't know what to do. And it was... I'm not afraid of awkward, so I was just so stunned by that that I said, sat there for a few seconds and said, okay, so hey, is it cool if I take my picture with you um, for the second time? To which he replied, sure. And then I took my picture with him, and it went something like this. <laughs> now, you can kind of see how overjoyed he is in the picture. Uh, he is leaning away from me. He wants nothing to do with me uh, simply because probably it's not the opportune time to do this to somebody before they're about to speak uh, to 8,000 people. But it was very clear. He made it known he did not want to interact with me. So guess what? For the rest of the conference, that whole week, I didn't bother going up to him anymore. Like, I didn't see him and run up to him and say, hey, what do you say you join me? Maybe we could, like, share a milkshake tonight because we're practically besties now. Um, so uh, would it be cool? You know, tomorrow we're going to go swimming. I don't know if you want to join me. Uh, no, I didn't go up to him anymore because it was clear that he was kind of frustrated and annoyed by my stupidity. So uh, that's how we are. And, and as long as we think that God is frustrated and just kind of annoyed by our presence and doesn't want anything to do with us, we're not going to be a people that go to him in prayer. We have to understand and we have to rejoice in the truths of the gospel that God loves us on our good days and in our bad days, that he loves us, that we are deeply loved. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse number 17 says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. That is God's attitude towards you, that he rejoices over you 
with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. This is God sings over us. He rejoices in us. He loves us. That's on our good days and on our bad. And you say, no, you don't know me. Uh, I sin. And if you know what I did this week, you would know that God wants nothing to do with me. Romans chapter 5, number 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us while we were in our sin. So you say, well, you don't know my week. I don't, but I know that God is still singing over you. He is still rejoicing in you. He still loves you. And until we rejoice in that, until we're reminded by that and let that truth saturate our hearts, we will never be a people that come to him. But when we realize that while we hated him, while we were his enemy, that Christ loved us, that he left heaven and laid down his life for us on a cross so that we could have access to him, so that we could be forgiven. We have to be reminded by those truths, and those truths will help us long for God instead of trying to avoid him and run away from him. And I don't know, maybe uh, you grew up in a family where your dad or maybe your parents, if, if you just kind of avoided them and, and did what you're told and, and kind of uh, didn't talk to them, weren't seen much, then it would go well for you. But if, if you uh, pestered your parents and always wanted to be around, then maybe dad got real angry and frustrated and it, and, and it started to go south for you. And maybe you bring that father relationship into uh, your relationship with our God and think that God's the same way. He's not. He sings over us. He rejoices in us. He loves us. Proverbs 15, 8 says, the prayer of the upright is his delight. We're not bothering him. We're not frustrating him by coming to him in prayer and talking to him. He delights in that. Because he's a loving father who wants to do nice things for his children. Matthew 7, verse number 11. I love this passage. Which of you, he's asking us, which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If your child is hungry and says, hey, I need something to eat, would you give them a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? And we would look at that and say, well, none of us would do that. Well, if you then who are evil, and he's saying, you are sinners, you're radically depraved, you do not have a perfect love and and, uh, an unconditional love that God has, we're sinful beings, yet we know how to do good things for our children. If we know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who who ask him. He loves us, wants to hear from us, and he is saying, just like when uh, children come to a parent and, and ask for something, that that parent wants to deliver that. In the same way, when we bring our request to God, God wants to deliver. He wants to answer our prayers because he's a loving father. And when my children come up to me, they don't need to come up all timid and scared and, and say just the right thing 
speaking in this real eloquent, poetical language. Like my daughters don't need to come up and say, you know, dearest dad, thou art the provider of all the cotton candieth that exists. Uh, please entreat my tongue with this divine st-. Like they don't have to do that. All they have to say is, daddy, may I please have some cotton candy? And because I don't have discretion, I will give that to them, uh, much to my wife's uh, delight. So uh, that's how our God is. All the more, he wants to give good things to his children because he rejoices in us. He sings over us, not because we're good, not because we're awesome, because he chooses to do so. So we have to get out of our mind that he's perpetually angry at us and frustrated and doesn't want to have anything to do with us. I mean, there's some people that he loves and, and he's for those people because they're rock stars and they're really good. But, but we know ourselves and we know the, the depths of our depravity in our hearts and our sinful tendencies. And we think because we know us, he doesn't like us. He's annoyed by us and frustrated with us and forever wondering why he saved us. And that's not true. God loves us. He wants to do good things for his children. So the first thing, the first thing that we have to rejoice in, the first truth that we have to let saturate our minds and our hearts is that we are loved, that God loves us, and that will help us uh, draw near to God. But that's not the only thing that the gospel teaches. The gospel also teaches not only does he love us, but that he is all-powerful. Uh, God possesses all the power. He is capable of doing anything. The gospel, if anything, demonstrates that. I mean, in the gospel, God overcame death. He overcame the grave. He overcame sin. He looked at our hopeless condition, our hopeless plight, and overcame all of that and gave us sinners the ability to be righteous before God. He did that. Because he's all-powerful. Nothing, even our sinful condition, is too difficult for God to fix. We have to understand uh, that our God uh, does not need to tap out when the going gets rough. He's not a God that there are some things he just can't fix. Like, I know myself, uh, when it comes to being handy around the house, uh, I have zero abilities. I, I am negative when it comes to being handy around the house. In fact, like, if, if batteries die in the remote, I'm like, well, that was a good run. Uh, hey, honey, we're going to need to get a new remote. This one's not working anymore. Like, I have no ability to fix things. If you come over my house and say, hey, do you have a screwdriver? I'm going to look at you with a confused look in my face and just think, like, I mean, do they just hand those things out to the common man? I mean, don't you need like a license or a permit to operate that kind of machinery? That's where I'm at. Like, I can't fix stuff. My car doesn't run. I pop the hood up. And the only thing I can check is the windshield wiper fluid. So like if there's blue stuff in there, I got nothing. I'm like, I don't know why the car won't run. The, the windshield wiper's filled. Uh, that's all I bring to the table when it comes to fixing stuff. I am useless. And my wife knows that. So when something breaks at the house, she doesn't even ask. She doesn't come to me and ask me to fix it. She just says, hey, honey, you're going to need to call so-and-so and get them over here so they can fix this thing. And sometimes we view God the same way, like, hey, uh, this thing needs to be fixed. And, well, I'm not going to go to God because he can't fix it. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands or go to somebody who can. 
And the reality is that God is not limited. And we can look at the gospel, and that truth becomes very clear to us. We can look at our own condition and how he was able to step in and do the impossible and save our lost soul. He was able to step in and do all powerful things in our life. There is no situation that God cannot step in, intervene, and fix. He is absolutely all-powerful, and he is not limited by anything, including including our prayers. Ephesians 3.20 says, uh, Now to him who is able, and I just love those six words, but now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask and get this or think. So not only when we pray, the things that we pray for, God is able to do abundantly more than that, but he says, you can't even imagine. You can't even think. I'm not limited by your imaginations when it comes to what I can do for my children is what he's saying in this verse. God is all powerful, and it's not that he can just simply deliver on our prayers. He can deliver on so much more than that. He is able to do more than we ask or even think. So when we come to God in prayer, we're not coming to a God whose hand is short, who is not all-powerful, who's kind of weak in some areas. He can't fix everything. He can do some things. He can save me, but he can't intervene in this situation. We have to rid our minds of that belief and believe the gospel, a gospel that says he's all-powerful, that he's not limited by man. He's not limited uh, by any type of power. He is an all-powerful God, and we need this power. Uh, We are a needy people. One of the things that hinders us is that we actually think we have some things under control. Uh, And what the gospel teaches us is that we need him because we're not all-powerful, and we don't have things under control. In and of yourself, you do not have the power to, uh, to, to, to have a healthy marriage. In and of yourself, you do not have the power to raise godly kids. In and of ourselves, we do not have the power to see lost people saved. Uh, only when God intervenes and, and uh, protects and defends us against the, the attacks of the devil, only when he intervenes and, and steps in and changes changes people's hearts, do we see uh, these things come to fruition? We cannot rely on our own abilities. We have to rely on God. We need him. We need to tap into this all-powerful God by coming to him. He's not limited by uh, any type of circumstance. Whatever you came in this morning carrying with you, and we all carry burdens, uh, we're all dealing with stuff, Uh, We all have uh, trials and tribulations that we're going through. Uh, Whatever that scenario is that you carried or scenarios that you carried in with you this morning, God can do more abundantly than you ask or think if we'll go to him and stop relying on ourselves to fix stuff, but we'll go to him and trust that he is an all-powerful God who is able to do these things and more. Now, I know Obviously, uh, that uh, some of us are going to say, well, uh, I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and, and, and God never answered. And, and I want to answer that with the third thing. 
Not only are we deeply loved, not only is he all-powerful, but the gospel shows us, and something that we can rejoice in, is that God will respond to our needs. God will respond to our needs. And I know that this is one of those truths that are hard for us to grasp because we're going to think in our heads of all these needs that we're going to think, hey, God never came through on that one, and I prayed for this, and and he never came through on that one too. Uh, But what we learn from the gospel, if anything, is that God will respond to our needs. When we have a legitimate need, God steps in in response because When we were in our hopeless condition, a sinner, totally depraved and unable to rescue ourselves, to save ourselves, what did God do? He didn't say, you know what, they put themselves in that mess, they can get themselves out of it. He didn't say, I'm going to punish them for their sin because uh, they sinned against me. No, he responded to our needs. He left heaven. He was proactive and initiated uh, our rescue. He came to earth and lived a sinless life, the life we should have lived, and then went to the cross and died the death and endured the punishment that we should have endured. Why? To rescue us, to be our hero, to be our superhero that steps in and saves the day and responds to our needs. Why? Because that's what he does. Because that's how he rolls. He, he responds to our needs. He steps in and he saves the day. God loves us enough to respond to our needs. And I know, like I said, that there are times where we can get discouraged because we've prayed for something and we've prayed for something and it doesn't seem to uh, be coming to fruition. And what he says in scripture is keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying for that spouse. Keep praying for that child. Keep praying for that coworker. Keep praying for that healing. Keep praying because God responds to our needs. Because he loves us. Because he wants to do good things for his children. Because he has proven over and over again that he will respond. Uh, if we were to take out a sheet of paper and start writing down all the times that God has stepped in and intervened and, and rescued us or healed or changed the heart or changed the set of circumstances, uh, it would not fit on any amount of piece of paper if we are honest with ourselves because God has been overwhelmingly faithful to us. And I know sometimes it's easy, even if his track record is completely faithful through the years, that very next trial, that very next circumstance, we, we default right back to, is God going to do something here? Uh, what's going on? Has God forgotten me? But as we look to the gospel, we see a God who loves us, a God who's all-powerful and who has an absolute track record of responding to our needs. And that infinite love should draw us to him. That, that love should make us a people who want to pray. It should make us a people who long to, to talk to God. So at Grace Road, uh, we want these three truths to be truths that we're overwhelmed by, that we constantly rejoice in. Uh, We're going to preach the gospel every week because we feel like these truths of the gospel are transformative and will make us disciples, will make us into the people that God wants us to be. So we're always going to make much of the gospel at Grace Road, but we want that, that good news and that message 
to so penetrate our, our minds and our hearts and affect us in a way that makes us a people of faith and makes us a people who want to talk to him. And we want to see God do big things. Uh, and we know that's not going to happen if we're relying on our own strength and relying on our, our, our own talents and think that God is going to change our city. We want to see God do big things in individuals' lives, in families at Grace Road. We want to see God do big things in our city and transform our city and in our, our county. And that's not going to happen if we don't turn to him and beg him to intervene and do things that only he could get the credit for. So might we be a people that are marked by prayer? That is our hope uh, at Grace Road, that we're a people that just so understand these truths, uh, that constantly meditate on these things and remind ourselves that we're deeply loved by an all-powerful God who wants to step in and, and rescue and respond to our needs. That's the immense God that we serve. That's the immense God that we worship here and gather to proclaim this morning. So for the remainder of the service, as we, as we worship him in song, as we pray to him, would our hearts be overwhelmed by him? Would our hearts long to talk to him? Because that is a normal rhythm of a people who have been impacted by the gospel. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a second? Grace Road, we need him. And I know that our default mode because of our pride is that we have things under control, that uh, we don't necessarily need his help. We're doing a good job on our own. Uh, but that is an absolute flawed view. We are in desperate need of him. And if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as Savior, uh, you need him now more than ever. The gospel says that we were unable to save ourselves. Because of our sin, we have violated the law of God, and that violation of the law deserves punishment. And yet, we don't have to pay for that punishment because God, in his mercy and in his grace, stepped in and provided a gift for us by taking on our punishment dying on the cross, shedding his blood so we could be forgiven of our sin and be made righteous before God. So if you've never trusted in that gift, our hope is that your first prayer is a prayer to God acknowledging your sin and turning away from it and putting your faith and trust in Jesus and his work on the cross not Jesus plus your good works, but completely in Jesus, knowing that you bring nothing to the table. And the Bible says that if you put your trust in him and not your own good works, that Jesus will forgive you, he will save you, he will reconcile you to God, and you can be free from the punishment of your sin. And this morning, if you're a Christian, would this morning just be a time that we're reminded that we're loved? Reminded that we don't serve a God that is a statue. We don't serve a God who died. We serve a God who died and conquered the grave, rose to newness of life, forever proving that he's an all-powerful God who will respond to our needs. Lord, we come to you 
And we desire that this morning our hearts would long for you, that we would desire to be a people that communicate with a loving Father, that we wouldn't run from you, but we would run to you. And Lord, we ask that we would be a people that pray. Not just at mealtimes, but Lord, a people that pray by our kids' bedside. We're a people that pray together as couples and families when people need hope and healing. And Lord, we look to you and ask that you would change our city. We come before you and ask that you would change our families and our county and do things, Lord, big things, supernatural things that we could just stand in wonder. So Lord, we thank you this morning that you're a God who's forever faithful to us. You've never let us down. And we worship you for that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.